Well, I'd like to add my personal welcome to all the words that have gone before, and especially if you're a guest, this is your first time to be with us here in Coral Gables, or your first time to connect with us online, wherever you're making your connection today, across the nation, around the world, right here in this room, or right there in your living room, we're praying that God's blessing will meet you there, and uh, grace you there for a greater lift for this week. Speaking of lift, we've already acknowledged within our worship our gratitude for the veterans who have served. Um, I'm thinking of from my family as well and thanking God for them today. Seems appropriate to me, though, that we would also remember a promise from God, a promise for the nation at the time, Israel, and a promise we pray would be a blessing for our nation and every nation that will take his word to heart. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Grant it today, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, a mom is fixing pancakes for her two sons, and she sees this, what she believes is a teachable moment. She's going to grab it. And uh, so she says, well, hey, boys, you know, Jesus would let his brother have the first pancake. And big brother says, the little brother, you be Jesus. <laughs> you know, I've, I've told that before, but it just, it's so real and it applies today. We have just finished a series on the way humans behave. And today, our focus is Jesus. It's not easy to be Jesus. It's not easy to follow Jesus, truly. I mean, it can be incredibly liberating. It can be amazing with joy and peace, but it can also be upsetting, unnerving, and disrupting. You will have moments where you just want to turn to somebody else and say, you be Jesus. Yeah, no amens on that, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> nobody, nobody does it like Jesus. We're going fishing in the deep water today, and I'm going to serve up some beefy theological steak. So I want you to give yourself permission to listen differently, and I will try to meet you there, and we will pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And as we think together about how nobody I mean, the, the message series is the genesis of generosity, and today's message is nobody does it like Jesus. Jesus went about doing good. That's what those that knew him and wrote about him at the time said. In fact, the disciples who wrote his story for us said, Jesus was without sin. Without sin. Hebrews, um, what's the verse? Tempted in every way, yet just as we are, and yet without sin. A sinless person. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The Roman governor at the trial that they brought him to said, I find no fault in him, which is surprising because the religious leaders did. They were always accusing, always finding fault, and it was no surprise, you know. He hung out with faulty people a lot. He... Uh, he hung out with faulty people all the time, in fact. Um, Jesus was no, To the point that Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. 
Sinners, people who don't measure up, people who fall short, people who have, some of them have some notorious reputations. I mean, considered um, traitors to the national interest. Some were collecting tax money from their peers for the Roman oppressors. And Jesus was known to have had lunch with one of the worst. You know, people can be the worst. And one of them was Zacchaeus, a scheming little cheat of a man, always working the angles for his own benefit. And uh, Jesus had lunch with him, stayed at his house. Jesus welcomed the women that his culture was throwing away at the time. Women who were self-destructive in their behaviors, marketing themselves, their bodies, but they found a friend in Jesus. Jesus stopped a stoning that some of the religious leaders wanted to execute because she deserved it according to the law of Moses at the time. Jesus touched the untouchables, the lepers, the diseased, the, the contagious. Jesus was accused of compromising with demons. Did you know that? John chapter 10, verse 20 says, many of those watching him said, he is demon-possessed. He's out of his head. He's raving mad. They didn't understand how being involved with sinful, diseased people didn't contaminate and compromise his holiness. And yet those people were the very ones who received him doing things that only God could do. Forgiving sin. Working miracles. Claiming to be God. <laughs> what? You know, one time some Pharisees, they saw Jesus that, that his disciples were eating, but they weren't washing their hands appropriately. And in Mark chapter 7, the religious leaders believed that demons were actually on the food. You know, they were in the air and would get on the food. And if and they could get in your body, if you took that food into your body without washing your hands the way they believed was the most appropriate way to do it. They... And Jesus didn't say, oh, silly me. They came to him saying, yeah, you're letting your disciples eat without washing their hands. And Jesus didn't say, oh, silly me. Guys, stop. Go wash your hands. Then you can eat. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? Instead, he calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they're about persona management, superficial on the outside, what it appeared according to what they were expecting. And he essentially says, you know, food really isn't the problem here. He says, nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them. That's still radical. I, um, I heard recently that somebody staying away from a donut that had jack-o'-lantern icing on it for fear of the devil. Jesus essentially is saying here, you know, food is not the problem. It's not the appearance on the outside of food that is the problem. Here is the problem. What comes out of a person, what's already in there that's coming out of a person, that's what defiles you. For it is from within, from within a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
greed, malice, that angry rancor, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, foolishness, just plain foolishness. Verse, chapter 7, verse 18, he says, all of these evils, you know, the big ones and the ones we think are just so small, why would anybody get upset about that? He says, all of these come from inside a person and they defile that person. So when the Pharisees see him eating freely, his disciples eating freely, they said, Jesus is compromising with the world and the devil. In reality, you know what? Jesus was just on mission to set people free from real demons, not the superficial appearances of them, the evil that comes from within human beings and defiles us. And as Jesus entered that unholy space with unholy people, he was never compromised by sin. He was in the world, yes. He, I mean, he was all the way in. He was up all the way in, and yet he was not of the world. It was not in him. He ate with sinners. Same table, same food, same bread, but he kept his holiness uncompromised, uncontaminated as he loved and redeemed people. And yet some labeled him guilty by association. You know, you lay down with the dogs, you rise up with fleas. That's what they were saying about Jesus. And here Jesus' response was, you know, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That was his way of saying, you know, I won't be keeping my distance from the very reason I came. The people that I came for, the sinners. He came to save. And nobody does it like Jesus. Our central text today is from the prophet Isaiah. His ministry happens seven centuries before Jesus was even born. And the part that we're taking a look at was written around 681 B.C. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me as I read from this holy prof prophetic word from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, and then see what comes to mind for you. We'll invite the Holy Spirit to open our understanding to this word from 700 years before Jesus was even born. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised. He will be lifted up. He will be highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle, that's what a priest would do with the blood of a sacrifice, many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows 
familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our pain and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We, we turn each of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. And yet he, he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a, slam, a, a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. May it please God to add his blessing to the reading of his word and to those of us who are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You be seated. Now, um, does that description sound like anyone you know? Like Jesus? Jesus Christ, crucified, raised from the dead. Theologians call what this describes... Um, as substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. This text, this ancient text, is called the suffering servant text, the prophecy. And it describes one dying for many. It describes one suffering for the sins of others. 
it describes one being lifted up and exalted, though disfigured. And here's what we know about Jesus from those that witnessed the crucifixion. He was flogged, he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was nailed to a Roman executioner's rack. He was despised, he was lifted up, yes, but he was despised, he was rejected. They mocked him, they turned away from him, they didn't want to look at him. He was suffering, loaded down with punishment for sins he had never committed. He was pierced on that cross. For our transgressions, Isaiah says, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Is this unbelievable? I mean, maybe we just need to exhale together for a second, like it feels like we've all been holding our breath. Wow, what? Can you believe this? And yet Paul... Knowing this text as a rabbi, Pharisee, teacher of the prophets, he also just reaches right into the heart of it and puts it right in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This has been called the dirtiest verse in the Bible. You want to know where the dirtiest verse is? Here it is. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. That's the central claim of the gospel of Jesus, of the New Testament, of the new covenant in his blood, Christ's blood. This is the, me- the message of the apostles. Christ's first followers who were in, in their writings, they tell of one whose blood will cover the nation's sins and then whose death would provide life and healing for all who believed. One who was marginalized, one who was minimized, one who was given no place, who had no voice, who was numbered with transgressors. That mean, he was crucified with thieves. That's what we know. One on each side. He was dying for a convicted murderer. Literally, Barabbas. He said, he died in my place. Yeah, he took your place. He was overlooked and he was undervalued by so many. And those that were saying Hosanna one day were saying crucify him only a week later. By the way, you know, our culture right now is wanting to pay attention to those who perhaps are voices of the disenfranchised, the disadvantaged, the discriminated against. If you're looking for a voice qualified to speak from the authority of what it's like to be disadvantaged, discriminated against, then here's one. Jesus of the Nazarene. He was born a Jew, part of the, an oppressed minority group in culture and in history. And yet further, he was a minority even there being oppressed by his minority group. He was innocent, but he was assigned to a grave with the wicked. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of society. And the remains of crucified bodies would simply typically been tossed on the trash heap that would be smoldering there called Golgotha. And yet Isaiah, in his prophecy, says that he was with the rich in his death. How does that work? Well, the Gospels tell us that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish leader, 
went to the political powers and got permission to bury Jesus' body in his own tomb. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, does that blow your mind? I don't know if you've seen this text before, if you've heard the story before, but it's like if this was my first time, I'd be going, what? Huh? What? I mean, this is uncanny. When was Isaiah written? When was that written? Oh, wait, 700 years before Jesus was even born? What? Yes, here's a timeline. This is 300 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians and the Babylonians, historians tell us. This text, 300 years before that, 500 years before the Romans ever used it in their power march across history. And 700 years after Moses implemented the sacrificial system that God gave so that the people would see how sins required a costly atonement, a sacrifice of a bull, of goats, of lambs, Passover, the Passover lamb. You know this story. Can I remind you of it again? The Passover lamb was to be a male lamb without defect, whose blood, once slain, would be placed on the sides and tops of the doorframe of a house so that everybody inside would be protected from the death angel's judgment. So the Israelites, hearing Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus ever showed up, they knew of the sacrifices of animals, because that's where they had to make contact with God on behalf of their sins. But how could they have ever known that God himself would come in his suffering servant to be the lamb? The lamb of sacrifice. This is holy ground. And the holy genesis of generosity, where it all begins who came to pour out his life for many, bear the sin of others, and make intercession for the transgressors. He did it all for you, for me, for every one of us, for every sin that has ever been committed against you or by you, by everyone who's bearing his image, for every sin ever committed, and for every sinner, every one of us, every person, for all of time. Nobody does it like Jesus, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Whoa, wait, wow, what? Happy Thanksgiving. But if that isn't amazing enough, Isaiah says, verse 10, though it was the Lord's will to crush him, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How can a dead man have offspring? How can a dead man prolong his days? What's he talking about? The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand? He's dead. His hand is dead. How does that make sense? Oh, wait. Jesus didn't stay dead. That's what he's talking about. He's foretelling the resurrection of the beaten, crucified dead man. 
Oh, my soul. The apostles, you know, the first followers of Jesus, they didn't believe it when they heard the woman say, you know, he's not dead anymore. I got to see it for myself. And they did. They saw him. Not only the closest followers, but over 500 in the earliest recollection of the New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus. 500, Paul says, saw him over 40 days after the resurrection. And then they saw him ascending before their eyes from the mount as he was saying, now you go and take the gospel to the whole world. Don't leave anybody out. It's like, this is incredible. What? You know, Matthew says, who was an eyewitness there as well, he's like, uh, he was there. And he says, as they saw him, some of them, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Uh, that might be where I am. You know, said, I'm looking at this happening with my eyes, but what? I'm not believing this. That's what was happening there. I'm not believing this. The New Testament says that they were experiencing Jesus. They weren't just watching from a distance like spectators of a movie screen. No, they were experiencing. He was in their lives. They saw him with their own eyes. This is what John says. Saw him with their own eyes, heard him with their own ears, the dead man who's now alive, talking, they're touching him, they're eating with him. What? They receive his instruction. What's more incredible than that? How about this? Having it be foretold 700 years before it even happens, before he's even born. Over 20 verses from this predictive word are quoted in the New Testament, sometimes by Jesus himself. So here we go. Let's, let's bring it home. What are you supposed to do with this? What can we do with this? There's one thing to be listening and knowing, and we're asking God, would you open my understanding here? What are we supposed to do with this? I have two words for you. Believe and receive. Those are New Testament gospel words. Believe it and receive it. And that would apply even if you consider yourself a skeptic today or an agnostic or an atheist or somebody who's been hurt by the church somewhere and you have reason to say, I don't trust those people. I get that. We understand that. We have several stories who relate to that on this side of the cross and people who have stories of healing because they chose to do this. So I would simply invite you, believe and receive or enter into the study for yourself, dig it out, and then ask yourself, how, what? What are the promises? There are three promises here for you to believe and receive. Here's the first one. God's promised to be there for us in our sorrow and in our sin and to deliver us. This is verses 1 through 9. Now, we don't see this with the natural eye, he says. There's nothing to attract us to it. For the most part, people hide themselves from it. You know, we close our eyes. We deny the opportunity to ourselves. But God says, I will be there for you in your sorrow, in your sin, to deliver. And then God can make it come alive, even though our natural eyes don't see it. He can make it come alive in your hearing, opening our understanding to his timeless truth. So he's just saying, believe me, trust me, believe it, receive Jesus Christ as God's suffering servant for you, pierced and punished for you, taking your pain and suffering, being crushed for you in your place. 
you are a Barabbas too. And he was there for you. So <laughs> he was cut off from life for your transgressions. So the question is simply this. Are you trusting Christ's death to cover your mistakes, your sins, your failures, your issues? That's the first. Believe it. Believe it. Nobody does it like Jesus. Second promise, God's promise to be generous with the suffering servant's victory. Verse 12, he will divide the spoils with the strong. Who are the strong? Well, this guy's dead. Remember, the strong are those that are still living. They haven't died yet. He's going to share some spoils with those that are still breathing life. And his life will bring hope and healing for the transgressors, those who are still Alive, healing to the wounded. So Christ's death covers our sins and Christ's life gives us new life. Just like Paul says in Romans 5.10, if we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, having our relationship healed and restored, that's what reconciled means, shall we be saved through his life? The resurrection of Jesus coming alive in you. Listen, nobody, nobody does it like Jesus. Third promise to believe and receive is the promise that God will give eternal life. Verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. I believe this is a promise of eternal life. Face to face with Christ, my Savior. On the other side, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back for you so that where I am, there you can be with me. And Isaiah says, yeah, he's going to see his offspring in his presence. This is a story of your resurrection in Christ, where you're welcomed to his presence forever. This is our heavenly hope to life beyond this life. And I'm telling you, nobody does it like Jesus. Our culture thinks that avoiding suffering is the way to life. You know I'm right. The less suffering you have, the better. And that sort of makes sense to a point, but if you think about it, suffering, suffering many times is a wake-up call to uh, allow us opportunity through the pain to take action before it's too late. Physical pain can help us get treatment for the body because we now start to pay attention. It's like a dashboard indicator is going off saying, hey, something's not right. Something needs to be done. And so pain can actually wake us up to a new opportunity of healing. The pain of sin can lead to the joy of repentance. The pain of confession can bring the healing of forgiveness. And this also means that just because you're down now doesn't mean you're out forever. I mean, Jesus rose. You can too. Suffering won't have the last word. You're suffering now. God will. And it also means that the man of sorrows knows what it feels like to be marginalized, to be minimized, to be overlooked, to be treated as if you have no voice. Maybe you felt that way. But now God is saying, welcome Christ into those moments and find a new hope. Just because you're in the minority 
doesn't mean you don't matter to God. He sees you as his very own. And he would have come all the way from heaven to earth, from eternity into time and history, and done everything he did in his ministry and on that cross and in that grave, that he would have done that for you if you were the only one. He loves every one of us as if we are the only one of us. Friend of sinners. Nobody does that like Jesus. Now we're learning that the genesis of generosity is the love of the living God. That's where it all begins. God's love is greater than suffering. God's love will suffer and sacrifice for those loved. And so as we approach Thanksgiving, I'm bringing this to our attention because we need to give thanks to God for all that he has done for us. We can say thank you for the suffering of Jesus, and we can also be less afraid when suffering comes our way. And it does, doesn't it? Maybe you're in it now. There is courage here to face suffering and to find God's way through it. We're supposed to walk with Jesus there too. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross. That's the cross of suffering daily and follow me. I'll show you how it's done. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, don't run and hide when suffering comes your way. Run to Jesus. Trust God and take it up. How do we dare do that? I mean, the promises of God are how. That's what he's suggesting. They become real in Jesus Christ, and they are for us in this life right now. God's love can transform suffering into generosity. This is an amazing miracle. You're in suffering right now. You know what? God can transform that suffering into generosity. Life-giving, that's what we learn generosity is. It gives life. Would you say this with me? God's love can transform, here we go. God's love can transform suffering into generosity, a sharing of the spoils, a fountain of life, a sharing of the spoils. If you're suffering right now, the invitation is run to Jesus. Let him teach you generosity how life and love can flow even in your suffering. And I'll tell you, nobody does that like Jesus. So let him teach you generosity even in your suffering. C.S. Lewis once said this, to love it all, quote, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and may be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, Dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, 
irredeemable, close quote. You know what occurs to me? God did not keep his heart safe. He hung it out there on a cross. For love. For love. You know, there's a part of love. You want love in your life, there's a part of love, there's a part of Jesus that you can only experience in suffering. But he will meet you there. Jesus will meet you in your suffering and turn it into generosity if you let him. And he can teach you. Maybe you don't know how this is. I don't know how this is done. He can teach you how to love like that. It's vulnerable. It's risky. It's messy. It's breathtaking. And it's life-giving. And nobody does it like Jesus. Pray with me. Gracious Almighty God, Lord Jesus Christ, how we're so thankful for your hands, the scars in them that bear testimony to your life given, though innocent, dying for us. And yet, Lord, how they give testimony of how the Father's will has prospered in your hands. Because whosoever will may still come to you and find mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing. And so we come today once again. Sister, brother, as the Holy Spirit reminded you of something something in your walk, something in your talk, something in your life, something that he says, I was there for you in that. I am here for you in that. I feel that sorrow. I know that sin. Give it to me. It's not yours to bear. And let the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world take yours. And then as he meets you there, would you say, Lord, what now? Your servant is listening. Perhaps for you, this has caught you a little bit off guard and there's something in your heart that's just saying, I need to do this. I need to let Jesus forgive my sins. I need to have God's life alive in me. I've been religious, I've gone to church, I've tried to do my best, I've studied philosophy, whatever. But today, you just have this sense that you are open. May I invite you to step through that open place into the gift of God? You can do it with me now as we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way you love me. Thank you for the way you died on the cross in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead. Now I invite you to forgive my sins, come into my life, 
and lead me as I turn from going my way and learn how to go your way until one day I am in your presence forever. Our heads still bowed just for a moment, but if you prayed that prayer with me to invite Jesus to come into your life and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps forward in faith, nobody's looking around but me. Just raise your hand wherever you are and hold them high for just a moment. If you're joining us online, please tell us in the chat. Thank you, sister, right in the middle. I see another right in the middle, two ladies in the middle section. God bless you to my left toward the back, all the way in the back, and then about halfway back. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Right here in the center again toward the back. It takes me a while to see in these lights, but I appreciate you all being patient. Lord, for every person who by uplifted hand is saying, my heart is open, my mind is open, my soul is open, and I have just prayed to trust you, Lord, may they feel your trustworthiness right now. Would you grant them the sense of your presence, the joy of their salvation, and that peace that passes human understanding so they can know that their next step will be a blessed step. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.